Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Hey, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today, I am talking to Steve Dunn, a U.S. Army reservist in the JAG Corps and a practicing attorney in Michigan. So, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, 17 years in the Army, 17 years since you graduated, almost 18 years since you graduated law school, actually. How's it been? How is the art of trying to hold down two professional jobs? It's been a lot of fun. It's also been you know, challenging at times. I think one of the reasons I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners is that, you know, I think my experience is an example to judge advocates that they can consider and really excel in positions at large law firms, positions at for-profit corporations, rather than only focusing on positions inside the government, whether that's at the federal level or, or the state level. And in, in my case, I was in college, actually abroad in Ireland, when 9-11 happened. And I was always preparing to go to law school throughout college and plan to go directly to law school. And 9-11 happened when I was a senior in college studying abroad. And so I actually contemplated leaving college immediately and, and enlisting. And my father, who's an attorney, talked me into staying in college, graduating, going to law school, and then looking at a career in the Army. And so I applied to the Army, to the regular Army, when I was a first-year law student, but I was not accepted. I then applied to the active-duty Air Force when I was a first-year law student and was not accepted. And so I had to think about how I could serve despite being twice rejected in my attempts to do that. And so what I did was I accepted a position as an assistant prosecuting attorney in Oakland County, Michigan, which is just north of Detroit. It's a large prosecutor's office, state prosecutor's office here in Michigan, and was offered an opportunity to receive a commission in the U.S. Army Reserve. And so I did that. I took a leave from the prosecutor's office for my basic my officer basic, came back to the prosecutor's office and was a drilling uh, reservist until all of a sudden one day, while I was a prosecutor, an attorney at a large law firm handed me a business card and said, if you ever think about leaving the prosecutor's office, give me a call. And about six months later, I had to do that because my wife informed me that she was pregnant with our first child. So that's what I did. I interviewed with that law firm. It's called Howard and Howard based here in, in Michigan, but with offices around the country. And I ended up joining that law firm as an associate, making partner with that law firm in 2010, and serving with that law firm for about 14 years, and had a great run there, all while serving in the Army Reserve, including multiple active duty tours as well. And so I've enjoyed the opportunity to serve in the Army, which is what I wanted to do, and also actively pursue a 
very busy private practice at large law firms, 150, 160 plus lawyers at the same time. And so I've really pursued those two careers. And how, how has it been? In summary, as I said, both fun and challenging at times. Now, with you, you were at Howard for almost 14 years, and you've since moved over to your current firm with Bodman, which you've been there for just about two years. What areas of the law do you focus on in your civilian practice? When I first left the prosecutor's office, you know, all I knew how to do was try criminal cases. But I, of course, was 27 years old and thought that I could do everything. And so that's how I talked. You know, I learned pretty quickly that there was a lot that I did not know about private practice in a business setting, representing companies and advising executives and directors in a variety of business legal matters. And so I had to work hard and benefited from great mentorship over the years, especially in my early years at Howard, in getting up to speed on the complexities of a business-focused litigation practice in a large law firm. Currently, I still call myself a litigator. I still focus most of my time on litigation matters, but I'm privileged to serve as the general counsel of a company called EOTech. EOTech is based right here in Plymouth, Michigan, in Southeast Michigan, and it is a contractor to and, and supplier to the Department of Defense, specifically in optics. And so it makes and sells optics that are used in individual soldier system firearms, and also optics that go on larger DOD items, including Apache helicopters, for example. And in, in that role as general counsel of EOTech, I obviously handle not only litigation matters, but all legal matters that the company experiences, which include a wide variety of transactional matters, what I call basic corporate blocking and tackling, writing terms and conditions of sale, looking at supplier agreements, looking at partner companies' terms and advising EOTech's leadership about those, and, and also intellectual property matters because EOTech is a, is a high-tech defense-related contractor. It has substantial intellectual property that needs to be protected. And so I still believe I think like a litigator and I handle litigation matters in courts all over the country for a variety of business clients, but I've expanded my practice beyond only litigation, especially for EOTech and its related companies in corporate matters, M&A matters, and also intellectual property matters that my firm is able to uh, support me with as well. You said some things that I wrote down because I want to bring this back to the purpose of this show. You said that you know you moved over and became the business advisor at 27. You thought you knew a lot about the law, but you didn't know much about advising business leaders on the law, business leaders and directors. And again, that was at 27. And you're somebody that was sort of young at the time. So if I'm a military member, a military JAG listening to this, you know, we're a little bit further removed from that. What would you tell them about trying to break in into a firm like Howard and Howard or like Bodman or conversely going into a general counsel, not the, the general counsel itself, but in a general counsel's office 
on the outside. What what do you see as the advantages that a JAG brings to either one of those type of situations? So the, the first observation that I would share is that in my experience and, and in my career, I have noticed generally that many JAG attorneys are challenged to move beyond their focus while government attorneys on having a government-focused or government-based client. And what I mean by that is I'm on duty, you know, literally all the time, every day. I keep time in six-minute increments for everything that I do every single day of my life. And my firm bills out my time at a competitive hourly rate based on our geographic area, the number of years that I've been in practice, and other relevant criteria. And I think many career government attorneys have never had to keep time and have never had a for-profit focus and have never had a requirement to do the, the five sort of pillars of private practice that I've identified over the years. And, and I believe those five pillars are really consist of and require active involvement on a daily basis in, in these areas, going out into the world and finding a client and clients. And you, you might characterize that as client development. Number two, convincing people to trust you so that when a matter comes up, they think of you and send it to you to work on for them. Number three, doing the work that comes in and doing a great job at it consistently and efficiently. Number four, billing. I send out hundreds of thousands of dollars of bills a month, every month. And that requires a focus and an, its own expertise that was learned over, over many years. And with, again, with great mentorship. And then number five, collecting. Because when I send a bill out, how I send it, when I send it, what I communicate to the client in the transmittal, what I communicate to the client in my individual billing descriptions, all has to communicate value and it has to convince the client to write a check. And so those five pillars, if you will, require active, daily, thoughtful, deliberate work on many different clients and prospective clients every day because every client and every matter is in a different phase of its life, if, if you will. And so one thing that I would observe, and again, it's impossible to categorize everyone generically always in this way, and I'm not doing that now, and I certainly don't mean any disrespect, but one general observation that could be offered is as a career government attorney, the attorney has not had to do any of those five phases except the third one, which is do a great job at the work when it comes to you. But in terms of going out in the world and getting work from clients, convincing the client to trust you, and then four and five, billing and collecting, those areas also require learned skill and expertise that I think many government attorneys may not feel inclined to consider before they find themselves in a position that requires that expertise. And 
those are important pillars on the on the civilian side in private practice that are many times at least as important as and sometimes more important than actually the one phase, which is I call number three, the doing of the work and doing a great job. No, you're absolutely right. I'm a 30-year vet. I've known what my paycheck was going to be every two weeks of my life, except for when we got pay raises or I got promoted or I transferred to a new location. Then I, then I figured it out. I mean, we haven't had to do that. We are attorneys that are assigned to clients, not clients coming to us and finding out which lawyer they like best or trust. It's a set practice. And of course, we never have to bill or worry about collecting that money. And I think particularly judge advocates getting out at a younger age, I think they are more apt to go to the law firm setting. They're still sort of like when you're a young man, I'm finding this out too, you're more flexible. You're able to do more. Like you said, at 27, you thought you could do everything with the law. And then when you find out that you're 54 or so, you're kind of set in your ways and you're willing to learn new things, but some of those things seem kind of daunting. And of course, you know, we're we're appealing to a, a wide audience here. What do you find most rewarding about private practice? The opportunity to engage regularly and directly with senior executives of great companies and that they value my advice and often heed it. And also the diversity of experience and opportunity, and also the demanding nature of it. I have, in 18 years of practice uh, with my wife and five children, taken a few vacations from time to time, but never have I done so and not worked. And at times, that is burdensome on my family. And thankfully, my wife, Elizabeth, who I'm incredibly appreciative of, is understanding and and patient with me because she knows that I do what's necessary for my clients because that's necessary for us. But I also would point out that that type of rigorous demand that's persistent is something that I feel I thrive on and thoroughly enjoy. Just circling back to a comment you made a a few minutes ago, though, that I want to, if I can, elaborate on. I've benefited from tremendous mentorship over the years, and in particular at Howard & Howard, for the entire 14-year period I was there, I had close mentorship from a more senior attorney named Tom Walters, and we had offices that were near each other, and he included me on all aspects of substantial matters with sophisticated clients and allowed me to take the forefront and visibly often the difficult action, even if I may not have always been fully prepared for it. He taught me patiently for years. And when I left Howard and Howard over two years ago to come to Bodman, I did that for a variety of reasons. But the one regret that I have is that that move by me and a subsequent move by him separated that mentorship. Now, I do feel like I was ready to leave the nest, as it were, and I've thrived substantially since joining Bodman, which is a great Detroit business law firm with 170 attorneys and five offices. But I want to point to that mentorship that I benefited from, especially from Tom Walters for all those years, 
And I want to just comment on your suggestion. I think if I heard it correctly, that you know, maybe a 54-year-old with 30 years of experience isn't so susceptible to being adaptive. The only thing that I can give myself credit for, Tom, is that I soaked up what Tom Walters was willing to teach me, even though at times I was embarrassed because I clearly was needing that coaching and mentorship and leadership. And even a 54-year-old, even a 30-year vet who's an 06, for example, <laughs> sir, if he or she is willing to be humbled and learn from maybe a younger person, but who has substantial experience that's relevant and who's willing to serve as a mentor, a coach, or a leader, it's never too late. And if you're willing to soak it in and listen and learn humbly, then I would argue that as long as that mindset will include the willingness to do all five phases of what's required, absolutely, you or, or any listener can and, and will succeed at doing this well. So let me play on that. What would make a veteran attractive to a firm like Howard & Howard, a firm like Bodman? I mean, you are an Army Reservist. You're very active. I'm looking at your enclosures that you sent me here. You speak Army, you speak military, you also speak civilian. So if I was to take what you know from your military experience, what would be the things that you would be selling in an interview to somebody that had granted you one? On the day that I joined Howard & Howard after just over two years in the prosecutor's office in Oakland County, Michigan, I had tried more cases than I believe every other litigator at Howard & Howard combined. That's because as a prosecutor in Oakland County, Michigan, there were weeks where I did three jury trials in a week, a drunk driving, a domestic violence, a stalking jury trial. And so I was 24 when I finished law school and immediately joined the prosecutor's office. I remember walking down the hall one day and my boss handing me a file and saying, here, this is picking a jury in 10 minutes. Off you go. I remember saying, who are my witnesses? What's the charge? What are the defenses? Read it on your way and go and try the case. I remember the first jury trial I ever did, I was there to observe a more senior woman prosecutor try the case. She picked the jury, went into the bathroom with a nosebleed and did not emerge. But because the jury had been impaneled, jeopardy attached. The judge said to me, you're going to try this case or I will have to dismiss it. It was a domestic violence case. I had never read the file because I was only there to observe. I tried the case. Now, the jury was out for five minutes and I lost my very first jury trial in that way. But I learned and I just jumped in and did it because I had to. And so what I would say to you in response to your question about what we as military attorneys can offer, it's experience, it's a willingness to operate in difficult circumstances, and frankly, uh, to add a little humor into things from time to time, it's being okay with being embarrassed. And there's nothing wrong with that. Conversely, how do you think your military experience has benefited from your civilian experience as a lawyer? What are you able to take over on the military side that maybe that same commander wouldn't get from an active duty judge advocate? Substantial experience directly 
and frequently advising very senior executive leadership. And so in the Army Reserve, there are really two ways to orient a judge advocate's career, if you will, to look at it very basically. One, there's the Army Reserve Legal Command, which most Army Reserve judge advocates belong to. Those units are mostly comprised of attorneys and paralegals that go out to operational units and perform SRPs, where they prepare for deploying soldiers and their dependents, for example, estate planning documents. The other side of the house on the Army Reserve is a much smaller group of judge advocates and paralegals who are directly embedded with operational units, like, for example, on the Army Reserve side, military police, use of KPOC units, which are civil affairs and psychological operations, U.S. Army Reserve engineers, and then certain other special units that have Army Reserve judge advocates attached to them, like SOCOM, for example. When I was first commissioned in the U.S. Army Reserve, I was attached to a unit under what is now known as Legal Command that I was referring to a minute ago. But within about a year and a half, I was activated under Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and assigned as a trial counsel, military prosecutor, at 18th Airborne Corps at Fort Bragg, now known as Fort Liberty. That experience was tremendous, and it was exactly what I wanted when I applied for a regular army commission, uh, but was not selected when I was in law school. And so with that experience in an operational unit, like I had while mobilized at Fort Bragg, now Fort Liberty, I knew that I could not really go back to and spend substantial time in the legal command doing estate planning documents for deploying soldiers and their dependents, with all due respect to the soldiers that are dedicated to that important mission. I knew that for me, as a litigator and as a prosecutor, I wanted to be directly embedded with the operational units where I could directly and frequently advise the senior most executive leadership. And so that is the track that I pursued, much to my own peril in some ways and expense, in the Army Reserve. I've been attached to these operational units located in areas all over the country for 15 consecutive years now, basically since I got back from my year-long mobilization at Fort Bragg, Fort Liberty now. I've been attached to military police unit as a trial counsel. I've been the group judge advocate for a fifth special forces group at Fort Campbell and deployed forward in a joint special operations task force in Bahrain actually where your fifth fleet is. I've been attached to and judge advocate of the second psychological operations group in Twinsburg, Ohio, under use of KPOC. I was the brigade judge advocate for the 926 engineer brigade in Montgomery, Alabama for nearly three years, traveling down there monthly at my own expense. I was attached to special operations command in Tampa. I was attached to the 350th civil affairs command at Naval Air Station in Pensacola. Currently, I'm attached to a unit in Omaha, Nebraska, and that's because I've said to the Army and actively pursued difficult positions with geographically diverse units and units with a wide variety of actual operational focus and expertise 
Because when I get to those units and I'm embedded, Tom, that commander, I'm all he or she has in terms of legal support. And they come to me just like an actual corporation, client, CEO does on the civilian side. And where my clients on the civilian side, like Matt Van Heron, the CEO of EOTech here in Plymouth, Michigan, he calls my cell phone, no matter what, where I am, what time it is, what is going on in my life, he knows I answer. He talks, I listen, I advise. I follow up as appropriate, and we move forward as a team from there. And Matt Van Heron, who's a great leader and a very effective CEO of EOTech, he knows that that's the kind of relationship we have as attorney and client. And that's the mediation that I had earlier this morning. He was here for, and, and we handled that together. Same thing on the military side. My commander knows that I'm there for her or him. They call, they talk, I listen, I advise, we follow up, and we move forward as a team. And I found, Tom, that as a judge advocate, with that direct experience advising the commander and that unique attorney-client relationship that we should have with our client, the commander, who is like the CEO of the military unit, that directly translates, in my experience, to the type of relationship that I believe the lawyer should have with the senior executive leadership of a civilian client, a civilian corporation, because it's the same thing. The commander is the CEO of the unit and has its general counsel, the judge advocate. It's Similarly, fun. on the civilian side, the CEO and senior leadership of a, a company that's a client of mine, like EOTech, has its general counsel, it's me, and we operate in the exact same way. I'm just wearing a different uniform. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, how do you approach, whether there's any differences in how you approach your commander, vice how you approach your corporate clients or whatnot. And you answered that question. So you were already one step ahead of me. What other advice would you have for people coming out of the military? I mean, you've given us some great things such as broadening your mind uh, as far as the client and business development, business aspects of a firm. But even if you don't go into firm, you got to be thinking loss and profits and how your advice fits into that. Not that it's a straight correlation between my advice and dollars, but you do have to consider the, the budget aspects of what you're advising a client to do. But what are the things should separating the retiring judge advocates wanting to get into the lines of work that you've been in, what should they be thinking about? How can I add value to my organization? And so if you go into private practice, and, and I encourage folks to seriously consider that no matter how many years of experience they have as active duty judge advocates. Always think about ways in which you make yourself relevant and add value. And as I was alluding to earlier, we as judge advocates have substantial experience in many cases trying cases, whether it's as a trial counsel, military prosecutor, or TDS, military defense counsel, or even a military judge for that matter. We also have substantial experience directly advising senior executive leaders. And so if you go into an organization that's a, for example, a large law firm, learn how you can add value. And there are so many obvious ways that 
your listeners, we all can do that. Find a good mentor and be willing to do whatever it takes, even to the point of being slightly embarrassed from time to time, as I have been, was, and frankly, still am on occasion, of course. And there's nothing wrong with that. But apply the resiliency that you have been required to learn over your many years of experience. How many times have you moved your family in your 30 years of service? Yeah, something like 11 or 12 times. And civilian attorneys who have been with the same law firm for, in many cases, decades, may have moved their family from their starter home to their middle home to their larger executive-style residence to include a second home and a vacation location that they uh, find desirable. But they've not had to adapt and learn new organizations and identify what a new boss prefers like you have and like your listeners have. Every time you've moved your family, uh, each of the 11 times, not only have you and they adjusted to a new geographic location, you've had a new boss, you've had new coworkers and colleagues, and you've had to learn how all of those folks work, and you've had to fit yourself into that scenario and adapt, adjust, and not just survive, but I assume in your situation, thrive. How did you do that? That's a skill set, and that's directly adaptable to client development. It's also uh, directly applicable to the requirements of dealing with new bosses in a civilian law firm situation, which is what your clients actually are. I tell my clients all the time, the attorney-client relationship is, is similar to what we learned in law school about the agent-principal relationship in the law of agency. The client is the boss. The client is the principal. I'm the agent. I cannot act without the authorization of my principal. Now, I apply my skills of persuasion to the extent they are applicable and, and, and real. I apply those skills to my principal, my boss, my client, and I tell them what I think we should do and the reasons why and frequently tell them why I think we should not do what they propose and the reasons why. But at the end of the day, those are my recommendations based on my experience, knowledge, training, and education. The client's the boss and the client makes the decisions. You've learned that, whether you're using that language or different nomenclature, every single time you and your listeners have moved and adjusted to new circumstances and environments, and bosses and colleagues throughout your 30-year career. And that's a skill set that you have that many civilian attorneys do not because they haven't had that experience. So learn what that is and how that is so uniquely valuable and apply it to client development and to the active service of your client as and clients as a civilian attorney. What is my boss like? What does my boss need from me? How, how does my boss like me to communicate? How does my boss most apply my expertise? And you can do that with your clients and your colleagues in civilian practice as well. 
And I think in many cases, whether you, you all realize it or not, you can do it better than many civilian attorneys who don't have that substantial type of experience is. Yeah, I tell you, Steve, as I was coming into this interview today, and this is not with just you, this is with any interview, is concern of what am I going to learn new here? And, I, and as somebody who is hopefully going to be interviewing soon, you've given us and me personally, a lot of things to be able to work into that. I mean, your five pillars, for example, I think are applicable, whether you're going into the corporate setting or the the private practice, not that you necessarily bill directly in the corporate, but you you, you are going to have to think about outside counsel and managing those, those sorts of things. But, you know, those questions of, and I wrote these down, how can I add value to the business? Ways in which I'm relevant. The skill of briefing senior executives, the resiliencies, the willing to be embarrassed, the adaptability uh, from moving and new bosses, new colleagues, and learning new organizations and preferences, and understanding that the bosses, you're there to legally and ethically achieve his or her desired end state using your skill of a lawyer, of knowing the law and advocacy and those types of skills that we bring to the table. So I, I walk away with this interview with some very practical and timely notes for me to fold into my preparatory binder as I start going through interviews. And so if you're going to ask, ask me afterwards, if you added value to this podcast, I would have to say the answer already is going to be yes. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I want to just give a quick example and an illustration that I uh, teach to folks here about client development, because many, I think, judge advocates concern themselves with having the ability, the skill, or the experience to develop clients. And this is a really easy illustration that I've found to be exceptionally effective. And it is, for me, quite literally every single day. I just take a piece of paper and I draw a bike wheel, a bicycle wheel. Okay. And I have the center of it. And of course, you know, the circle around it. And then coming out of that, that center circle, I draw spokes. Now we, you, all of us, every person can be the center of the bike wheel and coming off of the center the spokes are referral sources. And so what, what can be or who can be a referral source? Well, in my case, quite literally, every single person I interact with is a prospective referral source. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> and so if you use this analogy, this illustration, effectively, frequently, over time, you will develop a substantial portfolio of referral sources because what happens is a spoke coming off of the center is your financial advisor. A spoke coming off of the center is your CPA. A spoke coming off of the center is your, your life insurance salesman or advisor. A spoke coming off of the center is your dentist. A spoke coming off of the center is your neighbor. You can fill in more and more and more over time. Referrals make the world go round. And so I can tell you that I do, uh, thankfully, I'm privileged 
to bring in more than $2 million a year in business every single year. And that's been growing every year for the last decade. Now that's not just because hourly rates have increased. It's because every year I add to the number of clients because I add to and I enhance the health of my referral relationships. How do I do that? I refer a matter out. The person who receives the referral is thrilled and wants to reciprocate. People want to say thank you ethically. How do they do that? They send you a referral. And so I refer matters to attorneys who don't do what I do. They will send me referrals. I'll send a client who needs a new uh, CPA to a CPA that I know. He's thrilled. She's thrilled. They send different folks back to me. I send referrals to my financial advisors. I send referrals to my neighbor. I send referrals to my dentist and to my life insurance agent, to anybody, physicians that I know and that I do business with. Every single person is a potential referral source. They just don't know it yet. And when they get a referral, they appreciate it and they will reciprocate. And if you think about the bike wheel with spokes coming off of the center illustration, it's very simple, but I'm telling you and, and the listeners, if it's practiced regularly and deliberately, it works to generate a business in the long term. Awesome. Steve, we've been going a while. I think this is a great place probably to, to let it naturally end unless you have any last tidbits that are burning to get out of your head. But this has been very, very informative and I think helpful. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And of course, you or, or listeners can reach out uh, directly if there's a desire to have any further dialogue. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.